Hi, Suzanne Finder. Welcome to my uh, podcast of Mel, Gabby and Friends. Hi there, Mel. Great to be here. Oh, I'm, I so appreciate you actually spending this time. Uh, we met a few months ago on one of our networking events, didn't we? And I heard you speak and thought, I've got to talk to you a little bit further because I was absolutely fascinated with the work that you're doing. Um, we've had a couple of conversations and my fascination and curiosity and interest uh, grows because uh, even though we may have had different paths, we've had some similar um either understandings or trainings uh, around the topic that we're going to talk about today. So the title of this particular podcast is going to be Returning to Safety and we're going to sort of make that clear over the uh, coming hour of what that means but fundamentally we're looking at um, mental health stress but in particular trauma and your work and uh, training and understanding in that area, as well as the wider aspects of the work that you've done in the Course in Miracles and some of the understandings and awarenesses that have grown for you in the work. So what I like to try and do is bring what we talk about in the clinical world, in the research world, to uh, more everyday sort of understandings uh, for people that may listen to the podcast. So we may use some terms that are unfamiliar. So we're happy to be contacted and we will put our contact details on the podcast. And there may be some things that people want to take a deeper dive into. So we will also put some links to other researchers that are really renowned in the work that we're going to talk about. Um, so before I ask you a little bit more about yourself and the work, I wanted to share with people what's really uh, drove me to look at this uh, topic in general. And um, as I was talking to you earlier, in the UK, uh, we sort of divided up, and I think it's about 38, 40 areas. And in each area, there's a local authority that as responsibility is to look at look at the local welfare, health and well-being of the people. And for over 20 years, I've worked in mental health and well-being. And originally I did work with adults when I trained as a therapist. And then I started working with children, young people, families, parents, and then schools and school teachers. And one of the things that we noticed early on was that a lot of the referrals for the young people, that what it said on the referral about what the concerns were about that young person, you know, Johnny is experiencing anger issues or this behavioral issues within the school, is that when we tracked back further, if we had access to any earlier information on the child and family, we often found that there were maybe some more significant issues to do with neglect or abuse or drug and alcohol issues in the family, or conflict or bullying at school on, on a gradient of, you know, how um, difficult their past had been, not in all cases. And so sort of forward winding to 2011, I've already been in the system where we've worked with hundreds of children who've come through that service and realised as well that a proportion of those children needed much deeper work is we started to learn about ACEs, which was Adverse Childhood Experiences, and this came from 
public health. I think the findings originated in America. And I first heard about that from um, a lady that works in, in public health. And public health were tackled in each area to try and understand what um why diseases sort of occurred and what made people more susceptible to things like heart conditions and diabetes and uh and other issues and so also find a way to treat people or make changes within the system or within the community that um would mean that they would live longer you know and uh, and wouldn't develop these diseases so our understanding of aces or adverse childhood experiences was really the emerging concept that probably sat within the clinical field for a lot longer before we came to know about it of the varying factors that a child can experience that in the early years if they're exposed to can either predispose them for later issues in life or as an adult uh, illness. So it was the first time we started to connect with what we knew organically and intuitively as clinical staff, the link between mind, body and spirit of how emotions can manifest in physical symptoms, how a lot of illness can be the result of unhealed childhood experiences. And we were now starting to get a language around what that might look like. Interestingly, I only found two local authorities in the UK that were doing any work to train up staff who were coming into contact with children and families to help them understand that if there are behavioral issues or parents are struggling in any particular way. If we scratch the surface, we might actually find there's a whole load of other things going on there that have made it difficult for them to function in everyday life. And lots of people do function in everyday life and do okay until they're hit by crises. Um, and it's often at crises point that people seek help. Or the rub, as I say, on a very simple level, gets or the sound gets louder and louder. And one day you have to get get up and go and talk to somebody, see a doctor, go and see a psychiatrist or whoever. But it's often in crises. And that was what we saw time and time again in the system, that things reached a peak and somebody wanted to try and work out what the problem was or we would try and work out what the solution might be. And we struggled and scratched our heads quite a lot over what the, might, the right solution might be. Um, over time as well, my esoteric spiritual practice lended itself to me exploring the world of yoga um, because I'd had you know, physical experiences myself, I'd had car accidents and decided to take up yoga and start doing meditation and started to realize what mindfulness and meditation and yoga actually could do for us and how becoming more mindful and becoming more aware um, can actually get us more in tune with our physical being or our somatic experience, which is, again, language that I'm just starting to hear used more and more now. So that led me to really start thinking about, and I've always been curious about, if I come into contact with somebody, um, there are a range of tools and models and ways of working out there. And I want the best for the person that I come into contact with or the clinical staff that I put them in connection with, that they've got the right training and approaches to help that person. Um, but what we're finding more and more is that there are a lot of approaches out there, but staggeringly, 
there's a hell of a lot of doctors and clinical staff that have never been trained in trauma, let alone mental health or stress. And then people don't realise that it's a continuum of experience or layers of experience rather than something that can be compartmentalised into you are this or that. Training that I've done over the years to try and help people think about because of the way we're conditioned. So that journey for me has continued as I moved out of my thinking brain of my training into my emotional experience and then into my own somatic experience after having a car accident that forced me to tune in and start to try and read and experience what my own body was telling me and what I needed to do to start to heal, really. And I think everyone we come into contact with in some way is seeking some healing or seeking to find relief, feel better, feel good. So we came into contact with each other and life can be synchronistic and I've had some really fascinating conversations, but more so because of the training that you've had and the, and the uh, uh, other people that you come into contact with that are known within this field. So I'm going to stop talking now and invite you to share with us um, who you are, what you do, and the type of work you do. And we are going to open up the conversation about trauma on a deeper level, as well as towards the end of the podcast, have something that we can give to people that will have some information and guidance in there that can help them take that understanding further. So thank you very much to agreeing to this podcast. And uh, tell me more, Suzanne more about you and what you do and what got you involved in this. Thank you so much, Mel. Well, my story really begins at six years old. I was uh, in a very happy, healthy family. Little sister, mom, dad. Uh, mom was a full-time mom. She had been a college professor and dad was a young up-and-comer in corporate. And what we didn't know is that she was going to be diagnosed with a rare blood disease and that she would die in a matter of weeks. That started my journey. Um, my dad was ill-equipped to handle what was about to come. He had his own grief. He didn't know how to deal with two little girls. Um, he had his career to deal with. He himself came from a home where there was a lot of disruption, uh, an, an abusive father. So he was at, he was, he was in trouble. So I'm six, my sister is three, and he meets a woman who was exceptionally affluent. And um, they must have thought at that point, uh, well, let's bring the two small families together. It'll be, a, you know, a new life. We'll start for both. She had a 10-year-old boy, so four years older than I. But what ensued next was seven years of utter terror. She also had her own uh, past that um, she had not worked through. Uh, lots of, let's just call it dysregulation. She brought her own baggage to the party. And so she and my dad unknowingly were projecting all of their disconnection or their inability to be peaceful um, onto the kids. And uh, I never knew when she was going to be uh, violent and have outbursts. And, um, you know, she also had these exceptional 
exceptionally high standards, I never knew whether I was going to meet them or not. So I was trained to be the good girl in an affluent Mm -hmm. home, going to private school, riding camp, all this jazz. And I was terrified most of the time. That went on for seven years. I went to a private lower school and a private upper school. The private lower school, um, the building next door, the brownstone next door, I grew up in Manhattan, New York City, um, was the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And I would walk by that brownstone and look at the bronze plaque and go, I can't go in there because if I did, if I went in there, it would be even worse than it is now. The hell I would bring on to my dad, my sister, myself, might have been beyond any, any horribleness that was going on in my, in my home. And I had to totally self-protect. My dad never knew what was going on. And wow. even, even after we left, I could never really tell him what had happened. Um, my guilt, my shame, my anxiety really had an incredible grip on how I saw the world. Now I grew up, went to university, did very, very well. So I always excelled, um, not necessarily at sports, but uh, academically. And after I graduated, went to college, did very well, started a career in marketing and and also had an award-winning career at an early age. Um, But all the while the trauma was running, the unresolved disconnection that I felt, the confusion that I had about who I was, what my boundaries were, um, were getting all tangled up. So I was making a lot of money, but I was really miserable. Mm. No matter what romance I chose, and I dated some really handsome young men, (laughs) um, didn't matter. It didn't, nothing could quell this sense of unworthiness. And really that's when my, um, I would say my journey began at 18 uh, to figure out what was going on and why the world was so messed up, why my inner world was so messed up. Um, after I left corporate, uh, which I did about 20 years ago, I did a very deep dive into, I started uh, coaching people and found that most of them couldn't follow through with whatever it was that they were wanting to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't understand that. I couldn't understand. I knew I was a good coach. Um, I started taking on an approach called psychology kinesiology, which mm-hmm. increased learning between the two hemispheres of the brain. That didn't work. I worked with hundreds of people. What was it? There was, a, there was an element for myself and for others. What was it that prevented us from changing? What I learned is that it was very much the nervous system. Wow. The autonomic nervous system is controlling all of these aspects of our physiology, meaning our body and our body systems, how the cells work with one another, how our neurochemicals are deployed, all of these things. And if we think of our emotions as the effect of the neurochemicals being deployed, we can now see the autonomic nervous system is the master system. It's like the master orchestrator 
looking out on all the organs and coordinating all of their activities based on the environment, based on what's happening. And it's this incredibly intricate symphony where the distinction of body-mind is really moot. There is no distinction. So we're either in a state of safety where we're curious and we are playful and we are open, uh, which is a nervous system state called ventral vagus or ventral vagal, or we're in a defense state. Ooh. Now, of course, miracle says there are only two emotions. One emotion is love. The other is fear. And yeah. polyvagal theory, uh, which was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges, uh, which is why everyone's talking about the vagus nerve. It's because of him. Um, Porges identified that there are various states, um, including the freeze state or the shutdown state, which is our reptilian state of complete withdrawal, where we just want to disappear. Everyone thought it well, was fight, flight, and freeze. No, it's actually separate from what people think of as sympathetic. Anyway, I'm getting a little too deep into the terminology. I don't want to go there, but here's the essence of it. We're either in safety or we're mm -hmm. in some, some mode of defense. Now, there are more subtleties to it than that because you can have hybrid states. Play, for example, is a hybrid state, but I re regress. When it comes to trauma, our one goal is to return to safety. Our one goal is to return to safety in our bodies, in our cell, in ourselves and in ourselves. Because as we remember that no matter what happened to us in our past, we can choose again. We can choose to see how we reacted differently with self-compassion and with love. This is not an instant, okay, let's wave a magic wand and let's all see this happen. No, this takes a lot of patience and training. It takes well-skilled clinicians and really good friends mm -hmm. to hold us in a space of safety when we're not feeling safe, to remind us that safety is always possible even when we feel it's not. Mm -hmm. So how I got to all of this really was the result of my own issues as a young girl, as a young woman coming up in the world and not understanding why I was so reactive and why my behaviors were very self-sabotaging in a lot of ways. So I come from it from a, a little bit different point of view. I'm a nervous system coach and educator as well as an interfaith minister. So my first order of business is creating physiological safety, meaning the body being safe, so that we can then explore and look at what was it in our early life? What meaning did we make of what happened to us that then propels us into this negative feedback loop of constantly being reactive? So we the goal is to shift that feedback loop into one of I'm safe, mm -hmm. not out of the I'm victim or I'm a victimizer or a rescuer. Those are all defense patterns mm -hmm. into 
I'm safe. And I can deploy that safety, not with words, but just through my beingness and through my countenance. Just like Mel, when you're leading a, a yoga class, your nervous system is conveying safety to the members mm. of the class. Yeah. And our, our nervous systems are talking to one another constantly, right? I, my eyes and my nervous system are looking out into the world, to the environment, to other people. And it's always evaluating, are you safe? Is this thing safe? Is this person safe? Is this situation safe? And I don't even know that I'm doing it. It happens completely non-consciously through the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. So how can I reorient myself instead of looking for cues of danger to, to look consciously and unconsciously for cues of safety? So we're retraining our bodies to tune into cues of safety, whereas after trauma, our nervous system learns to cue in to cues mm. of or danger. Mm. So we're looking at repatterning that to cues of safety. It's interesting all those different aspects you, you bring up in terms of that potential journey. But if we think about the model of cycle of change, for example, you know, that sometimes people seek help and they know that something's off or their relationship, they're struggling in their relationships or they can't get ahead at work or they keep hitting the same roadblocks they might not necessarily realize what it is that's going on. And so part of the initial phases of any work sometimes is to increase that awareness, but then they can become aware, but then, and as I've noticed it, and we were talking earlier before we press record with any clients that come into contact with, and it, rem it reminded me of all the old models that I picked up years ago is that we all have things that we feel okay to talk about, but there'll be aspects of things that start to come into our awareness through that conversation. The moment somebody is in that space that is often created by a therapist to help them relax and help them uh, open up, but can start to notice that ah, some, something's coming into my awareness. And then there's a decision then of, do I share that? Do I trust them? Can I share that? Because there's so many things underneath as you talked about your experiences as a child. And as a child, we don't understand the, the world in any way that adults do. We make sense of it the best way we can through either what we read, what we observe. But fundamentally, we will just be like what you say in that place of, am I safe? Can I walk down in that way? And your brain will just be constantly um processing that information that comes through and that's what a lot of people again don't realize is that our brains are constantly doing that it's the way we remain safe as humans but the conditioning that we experience as a child of however we decided to, to what we call that experience what meaning we made from that is then the filters then that are created in the brain as to what comes through and what doesn't come through doesn't it and that is often the first point of uh, call when somebody contacts a coach or a therapist but yes. don't necessarily realize that sometimes we have to shine a light on areas that feel a little bit uncomfortable because in any and and this is what I wanted to help you unpack 
help us unpack for other people and distinguish is that we use words like stress, mental health continuums in terms of feeling okay and not okay and trauma and PTSD, but it's some, there is different distinct, there's ways of distinguishing how that might show up for somebody. And they don't necessarily realize that there is something within their past experience. It doesn't have to be big. It can be big. It can be small, but the experience that they've had has somehow created a chink in their perception of the world and the way that they relate to people that is creating these difficulties and neither do they realize that there are phases of a journey that they will need to go through now in order to move out of the what we talk about as clinic clinicians the self of how you identify yourself who you think you are to who you actually are and who you're becoming because who you think you are is your experiences, your values, your beliefs, the conditioning of society, the gender, how all of that is narrated. And then those deeper experiences of how you've been in the world and how you navigate that. But trauma itself isn't, there's so many variables in that, isn't that, as to how we think about that? Yes, there are. And yet, I think it boils down to one, one thing. And uh, Dr. Porges would say that trauma is chronic disconnection. Wow. Very simply, many indigenous cultures carry their children, for example, for three years. Mm. They swaddle their child so their child has a sense of self. They carry the child on their chest facing them the child gets a sense of the mother's heartbeat. The child recognizes what's safe and what's not as a result of the mother conveying that information through her physiology to the physiology of the child through the nervous system. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, maybe nine months, they're now carried on the back, facing over the shoulder of the mother, always being protected. So our physiology does not have that capacity to be independent the way we think of, well, we're independent adults. Well, that's not really the design of the human or the design of the mammal, one and the same. So we can look back to uh, sort of child rearing practices, et cetera, but our goal, our journey now, and I work primarily with adults. In fact, at this point, 100% with adults is to essentially reparent ourselves, teaching ourselves that we are safe. It's not to say we're gonna walk in front of a bus. I'm not talking mm. about that. I'm talking about our ability to observe what's going on and still remain settled enough to access what we think of as thinking, to access our executive, the executive function of the brain, where we remain creative and open and curious and have problem solving capabilities. But when our internal defense systems come on, that sympathetic fight or flight, that rush of cortisol, rush of adrenaline, does a few things. It cuts off access to that prefrontal cortex, what we think of as thinking. 
it also narrows our ability to hear what's going on. Our system ramps us up to defend, to either fight, to run away, or to collapse and shut down because fighting or flight can't get us. So we're working with both non-cognitive and cognitive aspects of our physiology. But here's what's fascinating to me from a spiritual standpoint. And this may be very difficult for some people, most people to hear. It took me a long time before I started appreciating what this meant. And that is, we are not our thoughts, mm. not our body. We're not our chemical reaction. We're not our behaviors. We are something much different from that. We are, in essence, pure awareness, pure peace and pure love. It's what A Course in Miracles has said. It's what all major, the core, the essence of all major religions is that we are love. But our consistent and unrepaired sense of disconnection has disconnected ourselves from that core nature of who we really are. So, yeah, I'll stop there so you can comment because I can go on and talk about this for hours. Well, I agree there'll be varying levels of understanding around that and that we aren't those things, but moving from a place of I've got this problem, this is going on in my life, they're causing me this issue, my boss hates me or I'm constantly stressed requires, you know, initially some clients, it requires the unpacking, doesn't it? And oh my. Yeah. sometimes you can be... And I remember experiencing this early on in my training is you can unpack what you think you know and what you think the issues are and start to go into a space of starting to feel something else. But without a language for it or without some understanding of that, some and some and that's what I've done for the 20 years. Part of my journey was about what was it that I found difficult to do as a kid and why and how did my experiences as a young woman growing up influence me and the choices that I made and the relationships that I had and the jobs that I took and my attitude to that and how did I end up with burnout twice and how have I ended up with lots of stress and that's what took me on the route mainly to doing the yoga meditation because I was a you know type a personality with you know, grow up with a single mum who did absolutely everything, who told me to have many strings to my bow, who ground herself into the ground and would would carry on working if a leg was falling off. That in one sense, you know, that's what got us food on the table, which is when people are in survival mode in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and in another sense, that's what I saw. They were the messages that I got. And that was what, you know, the conditioning was for good or bad and so that unwrapping of why because it didn't occur to me when I was going through the first stage of burnout that my attitudes beliefs and still trying to go to the gyms four times a week and bring up children and study and do this and do that was going to fatigue the system because I was living on on what seems like adrenaline 
because you can run on energy that actually doesn't exist and at some stage drop and so my like you my understanding it it's taken me years to try and understand how did I end up having those experiences in all those different aspects of my life and sometimes it's only takes that curiosity but it's layers and it's and it's a continuous journey and process that when I come into contact with people part of what I started saying a few years ago is sometimes we have to learn to put the brakes on and we have to go, that's as much as I can hear right now and that's as much as I can cope with right now. I need a bit of respite and I need a bit of out time or something because it's, yeah. As as the type A, I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. um, here's the thing. As the type A, I recognize and it took a long time to recognize I was trying to live into the good girl. I was trying to live into excelling to be loved. I was, I was not aware of doing any of these things. No. And it takes that speed is what keeps us going. It what's, it's what's allowing us to ignore the cries that our inner being are saying, help, help. <laughs> feels horrible i can't catch a rest i feel exhausted all the time and by the way this is what's lead what this is what leads my clients because i work with mostly women who've developed an autoimmune disease yeah um at the core of all autoimmune disease our mitochondria are stuck and um they're stuck because they can't hear the safety signal when we're on this treadmill of having to prove ourselves over and over and over and over or having to be perfectionistic, or any of these behaviors, it's always- but also, but also, if you've grown up in an environment where it's not either or, if you've grown up where you don't know from one minute to the next- You don't whether know. The caregivers are going to lose it or yes. be loving. You, yes. It's hard to trust that the, even if you ask for help, it's hard to trust that you can receive without there being a backlash five hours later off. And that's the other aspect of this. Amen. Because I've heard so many people say, why don't they ask for help? You know, don't do it all yourself. Well, because there's a second layer of that is now I know that maybe I need help, but if I ask for it, can I trust that that I can trust that that person knows themselves well enough that what they're offering is not going to come round and whack me on the back of the head later? Yes. So Mel, what you're saying is it wasn't safe. Yeah. Yeah. What we were doing as children was keeping ourselves from further harm. Yeah. We didn't know that. Our parents didn't know that. This is a big mystery out there, right? Most of us have never heard of the autonomic nervous system and how it works. So this journey is really a journey, not an instant journey. It's a long road. It's coming back to who we truly are. And it is the willingness because there needs to be increments of additional safety to look at all of the things that we believe about ourselves that we sure as shit don't, excuse me, don't want to have be true. Yeah. We don't want, yeah. we don't want it to be true that we really believe that we're broken. We don't want yeah. that to be true. So let's not bring it to light. But, the but, we, don't know the, but we don't know the alternative sometimes, do we? Exactly. 
So the yeah. journey has to do with first bringing us with a clinician, with someone who demonstrates safety yeah. with us in our presence. And that takes a while. That can take a while for someone to not just feel it, but have to feel it over and over and over and over in order to trust that mm -hmm. you're not gonna go sideways in the next session on them or something, you know, whatever, as you were just describing with the mom or with the dad. So there's this combination of increase of safety and then willingness to look mm -hmm. just as much as can in that moment. And then increasing the amount of safety and then the willingness to look. This is an ongoing, ongoing dialogue that, that can take a lifetime, mm. right? So I'm still reactive to things. I still go completely unconscious when there are certain triggers. Wow. Am I willing to continually work and look at, oh, I did that again. Hmm. What aspect of that didn't feel safe? And how can I bring more awareness to myself next time? How can I continue to anchor myself in safety so that the duration is reduced, the intensity is reduced, and my willingness to go, I love myself still. This is okay. So what's great about having the spiritual aspect to this is that if we think of the divine all there is is just divine love divine love has room for all of our behaviors without any judgment without any negative ramification because it's love so love can hold that space of safety even when we as adults cannot and we can continue to do the repair and do the repair and do the repair until the reactivity falls away because our, our initial injuries are, are now healed. But, you know, like in my case, I'm 61. I've got a lot of nerve fibers that will fire based on 50 some odd years of reactivity. They're pretty yeah. strong. So we're yeah. creating new neural connections and the more we use those new neural connections the more those old ones can start dissipating and atrophying but they're going to continue to be there even after we've done years of work we just we have more growth and opening to do that's all that that's how i look at this process is it's not a one and done it's a life journey of being, being willing to open more and more to our hearts to others, to re relate to our environment, to relate to animals and things with an open heart rather than a closed heart. I think though, and I wanna rewind a little bit again because um, for people who are listening, who are at different phases of their journey, so, what I've noticed over the years, and, and I don't know if your clinical practice, you've noticed the same. So there can be people who are struggling with 
all of those different aspects of their lives that they might find is problematic or somebody else is problematic and they don't realize what's causing that a proportion of those people are reacting from that place of not feeling safe of that trauma and don't necessarily realize that and then some people start to realize it but don't know that actually there is some things that they can do that can give them some ease or relief and then there's a proportion of people who start the journey and say I realise that all of these situations have some common factors in them. There's me, my patterns, my responses and my conditioning. And you can unpack that. But one of the other aspects of that, and I talk about when I do some talks or workshops, is there are many paths to healing, whether that is, uh, and I'm going to have to plug my laptop in in a second, is um a holistic approach whether it is massage whether it is talking to somebody whether it is going for a run so I just want to think about for those people where we're not thinking in clinical terms of what might be the things that they can start to think about if they're at that stage of their experience that you can help us unpack a bit while I plug my laptop in yes happy to So the more we can feel safe in our own bodies, the more we practice that, kind of like Karate Kid. I don't know, it was a big movie here in the US years and years ago, where this young young man is sort of left on his own and he uh, finds Mr. Miyagi who runs, I don't remember, an auto mechanic shop or something. And uh, this young man wants to learn how to fight karate, you know? And uh, one of the first assignments that Mr. Miyagi gives is the wax on, wax off exercise. And the kid is like, doing <laughs> us boring. I don't want to do that. That's what we do. So we're going to learn a very simple kind of wax on, wax off exercise right now. That, right. that when we get into trigger in, 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 in the language of, Karate Kid, when he got into the ring, that wax on, wax off, that was automatic, right? Uh, So we're learning new exercises when we don't need them, super simple, so that when we do need them, we remember to use them. So one very simple exercise that I love that I learned from the Trauma Resource Foundation, which anyone can go on and find um, it is uh, associated with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who mm. uh, wrote The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. One of a very simple exercise that I learned is finger breathing. It kind of reminds me of wax on, wax off. So what we want to do is breathe in concert with our bodies. And mm. we use the hands. So when we breathe in, Let's breathe into a count that is less than the exhale. So we might breathe into a count of five and exhale to a count of eight. Now, you don't have to keep your hands up here. I'm doing it just so that it's on the video. But why don't we do like three of these together? And what I can do is count and you'll see how I'm coordinating the speed of my fingers to the count and to the in and exhale. So here we go. 
inhaling to a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. Exhaling to a count of eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now this may take some practice because we're not used to exhaling at such a slow rate. So it might be that you inhale to a count of four and exhale to a count of six and build your way up. But you can keep your hands down to your sides and just breathe. Breathing in, breathing out. What this does is it's toning the vagal system, the vagus nerve. And when we inhale, it increases our sympathetic response. When we exhale, it increases the ventral vagal response or the relaxation response. So when we're doing this exercise, in order to relax more, in order to relax all of the organs that are being touched by the vagus nerve, which by the way, is not one long wire. It's like the most complicated nerve uh, map you can imagine. It weaves in and out of all of our organs. So it's sending that signal of safety to the organs, mm. which then goes back up to the brain. And the brain says, oh, we're good, we're safe. And it magnifies that and it sends it back down to the organs. So this is two-way system. So one way we can intervene and relax the nervous system is through this open hand breathing. And I tell my clients in between our sessions that they're to do it every 60 to 90 minutes mm -hmm. and to set their alarm. Keep practicing. It is not doing it once. It's the difference. Yeah, it's the new sensation in the body, not the thinking. So, um, gosh, I can't remember Jill Bolte Taylor, I believe is her name. She has a great TED talk. Uh, she is a neuroscientist who had a stroke and studied, yeah. her own, yes, studied yeah. her piece. And a question came up. It was in a, not in her TED talk, but in another video she did. Are we feeling beings who think? or are we thinking beings who feel? Her conclusion, uh, because we're mammals, is that we are feeling beings primarily who think. So we need to get back into our feelings. And one way we can do this is to feel more relaxed is through this open fist, open finger breathing. So that's interesting because there's two aspects to that, because I remember doing training years ago in the UK with um, the Human Givers Organization, and they were saying exactly that, that we get the feeling, then we might get the thought. Now, in the cognitive therapy room, they're working on the thought and then the activated feeling. So what I've said to a lot of colleagues is, regardless of which way it goes, we could argue about that, is what we do need to be going into is our bodies and feeling and experiencing the somatic element of this. Yeah. So when I started doing yoga, well, I was doing yoga about eight years before I had my car accident, but it became much more of a focus afterwards because I had to tune into my body, had to feel into the pain and notice 
where I was experiencing that and use the breath and use that understanding that where any where your attention goes, energy flows, and that's where you could start to generate some healing. So even though with clients, it sounds like a very simple thing to do, it's one of the most difficult things to do because this A, either is I can't do it because I've got so many thoughts rushing around in your head. And then it's like, well, the whole the goal isn't to not have non-thought that may happen at some stage. But the other aspect, and this is where some of the trauma-informed thinking comes into the yoga world, is that when you slow everything down and your mind isn't distracted by the stories that we play out of the day or of the past or of the future or we're caught into the distractions of the TV, we start to breathe, we start to feel. And for some people, that can be a very scary experience. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that and part of what I say to clients when I when I run yoga sessions whether it's a one-off at a festival or in a class that I'm running is you may feel some discomfort you may feel elation joy ecstasy anger you there's a whole range of feelings but that's okay because that's what sometimes happens however what's coming out in some of the research um into mindfulness programs I think is that difference and you talked about I think it was the window of tolerance of where someone can sit with and breathe into and experience what they're experiencing but for some people the experience of the trauma and the overwhelm will be just too much it will it will be activated so can you talk us through those sort of two different ways of looking or or that they're the same but different yeah So I found something that worked really well for me and works really well for my clients called the safe and sound protocol. And clinicians can be trained and certified in this protocol. It's completely passive where the client doesn't necessarily have to be still. They could be coloring or it's just essentially listening to music. They can listen to Disney music. They can listen to 60s, 70s, and 80s music, or they can listen to classical music. It's used by a lot of occupational therapists with children with autism and various issues. Um, And what it does is it changes a muscle in the middle ear to Mm -hmm. allow for greater stillness. And the way that it works, it's, it's fascinating and simple at the same time. When we've had trauma, we become more alert for threat, which is what causes all of this stuff to go on. And our body must adapt. It has a physiological component to keep us safe and therefore more on alert for threat. One of the things that will happen is this little muscle called the stapedius, it hangs out in the middle ear, will flatten as as a result. So go from this shape, to this shape, it will flatten as a result of trauma or chronic stress in order to keep us safe. And what it does is it allows in more high frequency and low, low frequency tones that are threatening to to mammals. Interesting. We don't even know. We don't even know that we're more on edge. We're more, my grandmother would call it spilkas. We're, We're more antsy. We're more 
I gotta move, I gotta move, I gotta move. Well, once we start with addressing the physiology, then we can sit and have a greater window of tolerance without needing to force ourselves. So the, the safe and sound protocol uses music to move the ear muscle from here back to the original shape where it's filtering out those low and high frequency sounds that are threatening to the, to the human organism. So what's happening when somebody gets more aware of sound and the sound amplifies? Yeah. Is that so, the middle limit part so, of it? Yeah. What I can tell you, I'm not, I'm not able to answer the question, I think, the way you'd like an answer, because I'm, I'm not a physiologist. However, what I can tell you is that when this ear, is ear muscle is reshaped, we become less reactive and less hypersensitive to, um, to sounds, to, for example, a car backfiring. I don't know if that happens anymore, but to a bottle rocket, to lightning, to a sound of a door slamming. It doesn't threaten us to the degree that it used to. Wow. So we become less hypersensitive to sound. And by playing sound that the person likes. So I, I listen to a lot of the yogic type music, which is like Indian classical music or, um, but there's certain tones in that, that I can feel really relaxed to. And then there's yeah. other music that I just feel completely jangled. I mean, it's, it's black and white for me yes. in terms of sound, yes. but it, you're describing as well what looks like some of the experiences when we had children that they teachers suspected of being autistic coming through our service was one of the key features was about their hypersensitivity to sound and people rushing about and that's been a new thing hasn't it um the the aspects of the middle ear yes what dr porges identified was it was a direct way to get into the vagus get into calm and stimulate being the biggest nerve. Now here's also what's what I find fascinating. And he has a patent on this. It's not the music necessarily. The music acts like what I would describe as applesauce to a crushed up uh, aspirin, baby aspirin. You know, when I was right. a little girl, I wouldn't take those pills, no way. So my grandmother would crush them up and put them in a little applesauce, you know? So the music is the applesauce. And the medicine are specifically timed frequencies that change in a very specific way throughout the protocol to reshape that middle ear muscle. It's not just the music, it is actually what's embedded, what, how the mu music is filtered and manipulated that actually is changing the muscle and is able to stimulate the vagus. Now, this is fascinating because this takes me to a wider realm of some of the holistic practices that, you know, I've taken part in. And one of them is sound healing. And we talked earlier about the mitochondria and energy healing, because energy healing has been linked with changes to the mitochondria. But the sound healing is fascinating because there's one lady that I've worked with who actually is in an orchestra she is trained in music 
um, which is a bit deeper than just clanging on a, a crystal bowl. And I asked her once, I went to the class, um, because I said at the beginning, I don't know what you were doing, but I felt irritated. And she said, what she does is she purposely plays certain tones to irritate the system first. That's part of moving and shifting what's in the body. Then she plays other tones that then relax and deepen the healing response. So she's got a whole strategy behind what looks like just having six crystal bowls in front of her. And when I connected with that, the whole idea around sound and energy waves, frequency waves, started to make more sense about why people are having really, um, you know, miraculous recoveries or, you know, um, coming out of illness into wellness, all sorts of different experiences because of these approaches that uh, the, the research is still very new on. And that's yes. what you're talking about is these, this way of staging the frequencies for that middle ear to respond to. Yes, yes. So that we feel more safe without yeah. even realizing it. It all happens at a non-conscious level. Yeah. It is, it is there. This is just a groundbreaking, very new aspect of science. And the bulk of the research has really been done over the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah, I think we're we're entering territory of because uh, you know that when you work in the clinical research field that you can research something it can take ten years. I think the average was ten years for it to even become in the mainstream culture, and the language that we're currently using around trauma triggers people using the word trigger in too much abundance in some ways, I think, um, and trying to understand why they're experiencing the problems that they are and finding some path to connect to, to help them either get that resolution or feel better or feel more peace because people don't necessarily know what the goal is. Cause I know that when I was experiencing difficulties growing up and when I first started training of the things that stress me out that now I find really you know quite at ease with I didn't have that understanding I, I kind of started to understand that because I'd had this experience with my mom and my dad it led to me feeling x y and z and then we understood about attachment theory anxious attachment and healthy attachment and then we understood a bit about trauma and yeah I still was okay we've got all this understanding about what's happened to us as children will influence us as we get to adult years. And if we experience some problems, then maybe we'll go and seek help. But there are many different routes coming out of this now, aren't there, as to what can be the thing that, that helps a client move to that next step of their journey. Because yeah. we're all at different phases of, of a journey and there isn't really a destination. But my destination for a few years when I started doing yoga was to experience peace. I'd experienced a lot of stress in my job. I'd experienced chaos. And it's so that was my and then I got to peace and I thought, right, I'm not sure I want to live in peace all the time. Maybe I want some excitement or, you know, we're at different stages. Yes. Well, I I look at my journey is one of I am okay in all situations. Right. In all right. So, so that's kind of how I uh, think of how I'm peaceful. It's not peaceful sitting on a 
on a on a, on a rock. Hat. It's I am okay, even when stuff's going down I don't like. I can be okay with me. I can be loving. I can be curious. I can be at peace, whatever's going on around me. It doesn't mean that I don't take action. That doesn't mean that I don't have feelings. It doesn't mean I don't get sad or angry, but I can be okay with who I am in this moment, every moment. Very so this around self-acceptance and self-compassion, which again is only emerged in the last uh, five, five years, I think here anyway, and have been able to take yourself off the hook and realize there are still some things that are go that I'm going to respond to. There are some things that I'm not even aware of are going to jangle me up. There are still some things that I get wrong, but it's that taking yourself off the hook and not trying to, well, it's like coming, coming to terms with who we are, but not staying, like you say, becoming more and more okay, regardless of what's going more on. More and more okay. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. when we're okay, we can be more okay with whatever behavior others are presenting. And we yeah. don't have to, because we're always co-regulating, right? We're always tuning into the other person's nervous system. When our nervous system is strong and grounded, woo, we can move mountains. We can think of Gandhi think of Martin Luther King, think of other religious or non-religious figures that emanated being present and okay with whatever was going on. That to me is my goal. That is my lifetime goal. And there are all, this is the world, right? There's always going to be stuff going down that I have no control of, which is most things. I don't have control over what anyone else says or does around me. The only person that I if I am willing to train myself, and it does take training, mm. train myself to anchor in safety, that is up to me. No one else can do that for me, and nor can I do that for anyone else. My job is to demonstrate safety and peace and love and joy, all the same, different words for the same thing. Mm. Things, things around me I have no control over. Things within me, that's what I'm, I'm teaching myself to do. I'm working with clients so that they can learn to start doing this for themselves because that's where the healing happens. Mm-hmm. We are ultimately responsible for our own healing. No one else can tell us that we're lovable, that we belong, that we are worthy, that we are important. I don't mean in the self-aggrandizing way. I don't mean it in a narcissistic way. I mean that we belong to a collective of humanity and that we are an important piece of whatever's happening. And man, this is a big journey. This isn't, you know, let's go and uh, visit a therapist a few times. This is a, a real commitment to opening up our hearts and lives to what's possible in terms of really feeling that sense of connection that we missed out on as children. Yeah. And sometimes our environment, as in who we work with, 
who what our families say and do and what you know happens in our relationships are the clues to where the work is and yeah and we've become more aware of Jung's ideas of the shadow of what we hide and that can be good stuff as well as what we define as not so good stuff in that shadow in those relationships but if we're only responding from the trauma we're not responding to the person within the relationship are we because we're responding to that uh core wound and that that damaged or hurt part of ourselves so part of that journey is also about seeing that the uh reminds me of Richard Rudd's work on the gene keys where he talks about the I Ching and he uses all of the I Ching and every um key has a a shadow element a gift and a city and I remember when I started to read that book because we've all got these different keys as part of our own human design or map or blueprint that you start to realize that the experiences we've had there are some gifts in that there is an upside and a downside to some not saying all of the experiences And the people we come into contact with can sometimes give us a clue as to what we can work on. But with trust, with hope, with self-awareness, with self-acceptance and self-compassion, we can receive that, see that. And if it's too much at the moment, we can check out and that's okay. and say, I need a week's break while I reconfigure myself and look at that and then see what it is, because one of the aspects of all the work I've done and why I'm passionate about whether I'm teaching yoga or meditation or whether I'm working, running coaching groups or individual work is I don't think it has to be as hard as it has been for a lot of people. I think some of the things that got in my way was I didn't have the language and the information. We didn't have this knowledge. We didn't have the um ability because of shame and fear got in the way of us being able to be authentically saying I'm scared I can't do it I don't know how to do it because we were concerned about other people's reactions or the conditioning you know in the UK we were working on trying to destigmatize uh mental health or mental illness and enable people to even just have a language for that and saying yes we all get depression we all get anxiety we all get fear we all have survival issues but we all manage that in different ways and some block it away completely because it's too much to look at and other people can manage and survive life enough until it gets to a different point but for me I don't think it has to be as difficult as it's been for some people because as so closely keeping hold of the protective factors desperately keeping hold of that that creates such a big shield between them and other people and that capacity to connect because when you do connect that can feel quite painful as well Garnet when, when we've had trauma yes no question yeah. no question of course in miracles it's very clear that joining is healing and healing is joining we are seeing each other as the love that we are but as children we didn't get that many of us Mm. in the western culture we don't get that in the western our western culture is very chaotic we we prioritize competition over connection 
yeah. over cooperation. Yeah. And so the examples that we see out there in the world are not supporting our internal desire for connection, our yeah. need as mammals for connection. So it has the ramifications ripple out. But the only person that I have the ability to change really is myself. Be the change. I want to be the change I wish to see out in the world. Was that Gandhi? Was that, I think I, it was. I'm, yeah. I'm spacing out here, but um, you know, it's really about that journey of self-discovery and having enough safety to do the journey, right? And having those practitioners like yourself, the clinicians like yourself, and many, 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 many other uh, healthcare providers who recognize that the number one, and Carl Rogers, mm. with infinite positive regard, or excuse me, unconditional is I think the word he would use. Yeah, although infinite's a good word. Yes. Um, we don't hold that for ourselves, do we? Yeah, yeah. It's true. And that's what we're learning. Unconditional positive regard. And that requires safety. Yeah. And that's interesting because he wrote all this in the 60s. He was running the, uh, Carl Rogers was running the um, encounter groups in the 60s and 70s our understanding of these things. So I'm just highlighting that, that sometimes it takes us decades to hear these concepts and then really get an understanding of what they mean. And on a spiritual level, and we've talked about the spiritual aspects and we'll all have a different way of defining what that means for ourselves and others, is that on a collective level, we are seeing that people are really starting to look at who do they think they are? How did their understanding of themselves form? How do they want to unpick that and look at that and see how they want to take the best of that and develop a lifestyle and life that they're what we use terms more now aligned with. And for me, alignment just means it just feels right. It just feels okay in whatever way that I'm choosing to be. But also, as Spinelli talked about in his work, our identity and capacity to live is flexible. We can be spontaneous. We can change our minds. But it's, as you say, the, we get more flexibility and capacity to grow beyond these preconceptions when we start to trust and become more okay in our sense of being in the world, which sounds quite sort of grandiose, but it is as sort of simple as that. And the more evidence we get, and this is one of the things I ask clients to do, is be a scientist in your journey of self-discovery rather than seeking this or that. The scientist goes and experiences either the day out or the new event or the activity or the conversation, and then they look at that and observe it and then feedback how that went and then they can choose whether they do it again or not or if they fell off the bike metaphorically and realistically what is it that gets them back on and try and and when you start to get some results as I did when I first started doing yoga I could barely lean forward and I thought why am I even going to a yoga class but when I, after three weeks, all it took was three weeks, I started to get more flexible and I started to experience 
just being still for even if it was a 10 second moment in my life that was what I was able to start building on and it was the consistency of going every week uh, I set myself a goal once a week going every week and then I started thinking no yoga is life it's everything about my life about the totality of my being what I eat what I drink who I spend time with but once I started to take those steps then I started to realize the benefit because everything's got a benefit hasn't it you know bad behavior can be as beneficial as good behaviors you know we teach kids but it's that taking that step trusting that you'll be okay trusting that somebody can sometimes hold you up when you feel like you're falling or that can be the brain when your brain is overwhelmed or that you can talk to when everything seems confusing and chaotic and that's sometimes what I say to people is if you meet a good therapist or coach that's what you're getting that's different sometimes from those other things that makes that difference for you sorry I've just thrown lots at you but you sprang so many different cells in my brain (laughs) um I love the idea of being the scientist and observing Mm -hmm. and if you've ever watched Groundhog Day I've watched it over and over right poor Phil the weatherman he had to kill himself you know he finally got to a place where he just hated himself so much nothing would ever go right he was always being rejected And so he decided, you know, well, there's a hundred ways I could kill myself. And he realized he couldn't, he couldn't do that. He would wake up the next morning, the alarm go off to the same song. And he started to learn to embrace life. And according to something I read about, because it was based in a novel, he woke up 11,000 and some odd times and started over. Wow. So <laughs> we, we start over. Life, accepts, life accepts us. We're, I think we're naturally uh, wanting to open our hearts, but we are too afraid, mm. right? It's too scary to be still. We have, we're always, you know, running in defense mode or what have you. And we, Like Phil, we wake up the next morning and we have a new opportunity to experiment, to try it again, to see what works, to see what doesn't work. Mm. And at at the end of his journey, or at least in terms of the movie, he understood what it was to be authentic, not to have to pretend, Mm. but to really come from the heart in everything that he did whether it was help the ladies with a flat tire or help the talk to the insurance salesman who he had complete disgust for at the beginning of the movie. But he finally earned a sense of love and well-being within himself that he could connect with the woman in the, the character that represented true love for him. So we're always moving toward moving to that true love i believe that everything that shows up in our life is a gift we may mm. not see it's a gift but why is it a gift not because pain is the gift that's not the gift it's the sign the signal the road whatever sign 
ah, there's something within mm. that needs love, that needs attention, that needs to be looked at, that is still hurting, that needs us to see what it needs to heal. Everything in life has, has this component. So for me, I would not be doing the incredibly fulfilling, loving work that I do, that you do. You wouldn't be doing this unless we had those negative experiences, unless we had those experiences of disconnection so that we would evolve and move toward this deepening sense of connection with all that is within myself, with others, and with the universe at large, whatever that may be, I don't know. But it is an evolution, an mm. evolution awareness and evolution in, in love and an evolution in that yummy feeling of I can be safe in another's arms mm. and not have to be defended yeah and it just reminds me that sometimes we just get a taste of that sometimes we get a peak experience of something delicious and we can then drop back into either the negative thought processes or the stress and agitation in our bodies or you know the fear and everything that goes on day to day but it's when you start to add up that we will get more and more of those peak experiences that become more and more of our everyday experience and it's stuff like that that's quite you know like with some clients you want to go this is what's really possible and I think that's the crux like some people will do the work because they're meant to help people do the work there's that one aspect but the other aspect is when you've come from those experiences that trauma and um started to sort of unpick that is you just know it's possible it comes from a very, very deep place and it it sort of seemed in the way that I describe it almost replace that other part of us that says we're not worthy of it because mm -hmm. we've got themes and societies of people believing that they're not good enough not worthy and and again I think this is a whole level of different conditioning that has gone on uh since the early 1900s so in terms of how we've programmed people and it's that deep core wound and deep ideas about who you think you are and whether you're worthy or not and once you realize that all of us have the right to exist and to be and to experience something other than pain and hurt and that it is possible but you know sitting there and saying that as you said earlier if someone says that to you um when you're in that space you either get angry with them or just want to tell them to bob off somewhere you know yeah, yeah. and so the therapist or the practitioner and this is one of the other things we used to teach is if the teacher is anxious when the child tells them they're cutting themselves because they can't cope with the internal trauma that they're feeling or the partner tells the the other person that they are overwhelmed and can't cope with what's going on. If they're not with somebody that can receive them, if that teacher can't put to one side or cope with their own anxiety, that person can't be received and experience the space of trust and love. And that's where I've seen 
more damage being done is when and that was a conversation I used to have with a lot of teachers. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to have a solution. There are a few tools in your toolbox. It's being present. It's receiving that person and not f- falling over with fear of, oh, my God, what are they going to tell me? And can I cope? And is it my responsibility to change them and the world? No. Oh. Just being able to stay in your own space and breathe. And if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just listen. Yes, it's demonstrating that safety within yourself. Yeah. Holding the space of love is very, very difficult for those of us who really didn't experience that when we needed it. Yeah. Right? So it's holding that and teaching ourselves with the help of others. It's a chain reaction, right? So now you're working with someone and that that you, you extend your love and warmth and caring and demonstrating that and then that it has a ripple effect we don't know who we touch as we demonstrate that but there is always a ripple effect always our anger and defensiveness has a ripple effect in the world and our self-possession and self-love again not the narcissistic kind but there's the willingness to have an open heart and be helpful and be caring not to necessarily rescue. Rescue is a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. but mm. to really be available for, I'm here with you. You're not alone. You're yeah. Be okay. yeah. And I think just before we finish this podcast, and I think it'd be great to expand these conversations further. If there's anything that anybody needs to hear a lot more now, because of the level of disconnects, especially since COVID, is that someone is there and they're not alone and they can connect. Yeah. Mel, thank you so much. It was, this was a pleasure. We could we could be talking for many, many different podcasts, I'm sure. I think so. But thank you so much, Suzanne, for coming on and sharing your deep knowledge and your deep wisdom and my deep gratitude for sharing and connecting in this space with you. The gratitude is mine as well. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I will I will share, um, uh, and so folks can get in contact with you, uh, a little booklet on self, 10 different self-regulation exercises that do with breathing and movement and a, a little yoga movement as well. Uh, it's the wax on, wax off that you can do on your own, but it's really fun. I have one client who's, little boys do it with her and they go mommy it's time it's time to do your we call one of the exercises is yawn stretch mommy it's time to for us to do our yawn stretch really fun that's brilliant so I think we're going to create that link possibly on my website so I'll put that information on the uh, YouTube when I upload it and I think when we next talk Uh, we could go into a lot more of the practices that people can do or that you can do within yoga or other holistic practices that equally start to support somebody in the healing process. Beautiful. Mel, thank you so much. Peace. Thank you.